Welcome everybody to the uh, third episode of the Ballot Breakdown Podcast, a show formed by college students to help anybody understand vital elections across the country, from Nevada to New Hampshire, Alaska to Arkansas, and everywhere in between. Today is November 12th. My name is Daniel Tamalo, and I'm joined by my co-host Nicole Sana. Hello. And Will Allison. Hello. And I'd also like to give a shout out to our production team, Izzy Belsito and Emily Ashley, who cannot say hello. This is the first of many episodes, or sorry, this is not the first of many episodes to come. This is the third of many episodes to come. And we are so excited to bring you a quality, listenable podcast with some exciting guests as well. Finally, I get to drop the coming in later episodes. We have one now. This episode will focus on the Democratic primary for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania, a currently lopsided fight between Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman and multiple legitimately good candidates, including Montgomery County Commissioner Val Akush, U.S. Representative Connor Lamb, and Pennsylvania State Representative Malcolm Kenyatta, who we are ecstatic to welcome to the show today. Fetterman may be at 52% in a recent poll, but is that going to stick as the race starts to heat up? Are we really sure that Fetterman is as safe as it seems? And who is most likely to come from behind? Uh, so, Will, you dove into the Western Pennsylvania candidates, who John Fetterman and Connor Lamb, the two highest polling candidates. Currently, Fetterman at 52 in the recent poll, Lamb at 12. So, who are they? Give us a, a breakdown. What do they focus on? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, just for a little biography here, uh, John Fetterman, the current frontrunner, uh, was born to a, uh, as he put it, quite poor family, um, and who later became wealthy by running, I think it was a insurance business. Um, he was uh, originally, as he described himself, um, not interested in like politics, sort of vaguely conservative because his family was. Um, but at one point, I believe one of his friends was killed in an auto accident, and that sort of set Fetterman onto a different course of public service. So he would end up graduating from Harvard. Uh, and shortly after, uh, moving back to a community he had worked for AmeriCorps in uh, and becoming mayor of Braddock. Um, so he was mayor of Braddock from about 2006 to 2019, uh, at which point he took up his post uh, that he had been elected in of lieutenant governor, at which point he had run in that primary uh, in a close multi-way primary, but he ended up winning uh, by a higher margin than he was polled at. Um he attempted a run for Senate in 2016, uh, going straight from his mayoralty. Uh, and while he overperformed expectations, he still came in a distant third, as he was very much uh, the more minor of the three candidates running. Really put his name uh, on the map, though. Yeah, no, it got a lot of people aware of him, and it showed a trend with him, which is overperforming polling. And, and <laughs> the two major statewide races he's been in, he's overperformed polling both times. Yeah. Um, so as for his focus on the campaign, he mainly emphasizes his outsider status um, and his sort of unique appearance. He's a bit of an odd-looking guy, and he's not afraid to share that with the world. He's probably the um, most unique. I think he, he's been described before politician. as looking like a uh, like a bike gang member. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, when you see him, you don't exactly think, oh, yeah, he's a Democratic think, progressive who really supports uh, yeah. marijuana legislation and, and uh, criminal justice reform. I think you, know, there were, you, you think of him as, uh, where can I get my next cigarette? But <laughs> yeah, I he's believe clearly working for w- One of the magazines or one of the interviews he did i believe he was described as aesthetically challenged um but that, that's just insulting at that point <laughs> but uh. he um his main focuses are marijuana legalization uh union life uh criminal justice reform uh and medicare for all with connor lamb the second place getting 1.2 million in the uh in a second place from him uh especially considering a lot of lamb's money has come from different packs whereas uh fetterman's is almost all small dollar donations yeah um but i I believe fetterman's gotten donations from every county in pennsylvania i know he had that yeah yeah i believe he filled out his map and he's officially got one from every county um but yeah so fetterman's main strengths include the fact that he's a well-known name across the state he has a unique and different brand he stands out from the competition and he has a lot of strength in fundraising um but he also has um, a lack of major endorsements, as well as um, a lot of organizations, both moderate establishment ones and progressive ones, do seem to keep their distance um, because he's not a super familiar face among uh, Pennsylvania politicos. So the main question is whether or not his personal force of charisma and name recognition can overcome that structural disadvantage. And obviously, you know, you know, Fetterman, he's, he's gotten in, you know, a bit of trouble before, obviously two different types of trouble. One, while he's lieutenant governor, he constantly puts uh, flags up on the, gov- on the lieutenant governor's yes, mansion. Yes, the flags. Uh, you know, uh, 
he puts up a LGBTQ flag and he puts up a weed flag. Um, I, I know the LGBTQ flag has caused more chaos among the Republicans yes. in the, <laughs> uh, you know, in the Pennsylvania General Assembly, which isn't great. I know he got it taken down and then he uh-huh. like bought a new one and put it up the day after. So uh-huh. full respect to Fetterman for that. But, you know, the one big criticism of Fetterman so far that hasn't really affected the race thus far, but might, you know, find a return once it gets to debate season mm-hmm. um, is his, the incident yes. that he was uh, involved in in Braddock when he was mayor there. Uh, there was a incident that he describes as he heard gunshots outside of his house, picked up his shotgun, saw a guy in a black hoodie running by, chased him down and held him at gunpoint. Um, Fetterman's, he's apologized multiple times. Uh, the man was a black man, which has caused a lot of, uh, you know, issues with, uh, his support amongst people of color. Sometimes, uh, you know, I hear a lot, that's a lot of attacks that I hear is that he won't get turnout in Philly and Pittsburgh. Um, you know, there, is, there are arguments for both sides here. One, you shouldn't go after somebody with a shotgun, right? Especially, um, you know, a black man that people say, mm. but then, uh, you know, in Fetterman's defense and what he said, you know, he was mayor of Braddock, which is a, uh, it's a suburb outside of, uh, Pittsburgh, uh, and Braddock demographically is a majority African-American. I believe it's 67% African-American. Now it might've been slightly more African-American. Uh, I don't remember what the demographics were when he was in office. So, you know, I hear people saying, yeah, of course. Yeah, sure. It was a black man. That's who he lived with. You know, that's the majority of people there. But at the same time, he ran after someone with a shotgun. So yeah. like, I- I'm not defending that. I'm and just I- saying from both sides. Too, something too to add to that. Um, notably, uh, when interviewed, the guy in question, while understandably baffled by the fact that the incident ever occurred and still obviously not Fetterman's biggest fan because, again, Fetterman performed a citizen's arrest on him. Yeah. Um, the guy has stated that he doesn't believe it should get in the way of Fetterman's Senate run or that it like it doesn't, that is ref- true, yeah. it doesn't reflect on his future abilities as a senator. So, yeah, the, the, that incident will probably come back to haunt him Absolutely, as the election yeah. heats up. But we'll, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. It's um, very complicated. But yeah, uh, clearly Fetterman's the favorite in this race. You know, he has high name recognition, especially from his unique appearance and uh, his reputation as lieutenant governor and as mayor of Braddock, revitalizing a town that was had been destroyed from the loss of a coal industry and things like that. Um, and, you know, it's going to be a race among everyone else. Um, you know, who can get there? So Connor Lamb, he believes he can get there. He's also Western Pennsylvania. He serves as the U.S. representative from uh, the... 18th Pennsylvania 18th congressional district. He's uh he's 17th, 17th? now, but he, he was elected initially to the 18th, and then they right, changed right. everything. All right, so just quickly give us a rundown. Who's Connor yeah. Lamb? What does he do? Just real quick. Yeah, so he's uh, a member of a Pittsburgh-based political family. Um, his uncle's currently Pittsburgh city controller, and his grandfather was a state senator here. Um, he was originally uh, in the Marine Corps, and then after exiting uh, the Marine Corps, he became an assistant U.S. attorney. Followed that up with entering and winning the special election for PA's 18th Congressional District, which is now the 17th Congressional District, uh, which consists of a lot of Pittsburgh suburbs and some surrounding rural areas, um, which is a pretty close uh, swing district, uh, which generally favors Republicans. Um, So he prevailed in both his special election as well as following elections in 2018 and 2020. Uh, although his 2020 performance against Sean Parnell was slightly behind Biden in a very close race. Um, he also outperformed Democrats in 2018. So, so far, he's been right about on average. Um, and he has now entered the Senate primary. Um, so he has a lot of endorsements. He uh, markets himself as a, quote, normal Democrat. Um, we'll get to that I'm in sure, a minute. Yeah. sure we're going to discuss the tweet. <laughs> we will. Um, Just but a yeah, minute. His, his main issues are instead of Medicare for all, he supports expanding Obamacare. Um, he is very uh, bullish towards China, and he has a lot of more of a foreign policy focus to him than a lot of his opponents. Mm. Um, and a rare thing that differentiates him from many other moderates, he supports uh, removing the filibuster in Congress, which is uh, quite a surprise to a lot of people who think of him only as just a moderate. Uh, but generally, he does market himself as more of a Manchin-style moderate, and of all the candidates running, I think it's fair to say he is furthest to the right, although being a Democrat, of course, that mm. still makes him left. But yeah, yes. so he's an interesting character as well. I wish Marcus was here hosting with us uh, today because um, he's a big Conor Lamb believer. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I'd be curious to pick his brain. Yeah, we'll to get, get his opinion on We'll that. likely be recording multiple Pennsylvania Senate episodes as the race develops throughout the next year. Uh, so, you know, we'll see 
how this changes. Hopefully, we can get him on the pod at one point. Yeah. But anyways, Connor Lamb, uh, you know, you know, I'm not. Uh, admittedly, personally, I'm not the biggest fan of Connor Lamb. I'm gonna put that out there. So if there's any bias, I apologize. <laughs> but he sh- he he shot the first shot. The the shot heard around Pennsylvania. I'm just kidding. It was just on Twitter. Nobody cares. Um, he tweeted on November seventh. Uh, at 10:40 p.m., which uh, I don't know if the the late hour meant anything, uh, you know, kind of keep it keep it on the down low a little bit, but he tweeted uh, an attack many people have interpreted as an attack against not only uh, you know progressives like uh, Malcolm Kenyatta uh, and John Fetterman, but also John Fetterman himself uh, for not being quote normal as Will was saying. Here I'll read the tweet. <laughs> If you want a senator who runs as a socialist, feeds the GOP attack ads, and didn't help with infrastructure, in all caps, I'm not your guy. That's not how you beat Republicans. I know because I've actually done it and will again. I'm a normal Democrat who supports jobs and wins elections. Hashtag PSN. A so, normal Democrat. Yeah, a normal Democrat. What does that mean in this day and age? Uh, what, what is a normal... What, what do you think Conaway means by being a normal Democrat? Well, I think the capitalized socialist right there at the beginning is definitely a big indicator. I think that's in a lot of Republican messaging being like Democrats are all socialists and they're radical, which is obviously untrue. But I Connor Lamb took an interesting stance here trying to be like, well, I mean, he's branding himself as a moderate, I would say, and he wants to appeal to Pennsylvania moderates. So I think that's what he meant by normal Democrat. But I just think it's weird phrasing. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it's an it's an interesting uh, tweet, which what what a phrase right there. Uh, but he, you know, towards the end there, he's talking about like uh, I'm a, he he says there's one line where he's like, if you uh, want someone who didn't help with the infrastructure bill, I'm not your guy, which is a bit interesting because he is the only person currently running. Uh, for PA Senate who could vote on the infrastructure bill because <laughs> everyone else is a state-level figure. So I, I don't exactly know what he meant by that, but the gist of the tweet, obviously, trying to push himself as a moderate candidate. Right. Um, and, and on the heels of the, you know, the, inf- the big infrastructure bill passing, he probably thought it was a great tweet. Um, and, and feeding the GOP attack ads, I, I don't really know what he means by that at all I, I i don't know about y'all but i haven't seen any gop attack ads for this race yet it's too early i mean the general yeah. election is in nearly a year uh obviously the democratic primary is le- far less than that you know I yeah. don't, what's what's the date for that five six months mm. but but like i don't see why i don't That's see why the gop would be attacking him yeah i mean they have enough issues yeah. to worry about on themselves having <laughs> to worry about dr oz entering the race to yes ch- to challenge a guy who beats his wife we'll get into that another it's a remarkable episode. race oh yeah um. But something else I think, too, is to look at the divide among Democrats on how to run in PA, because PA is a very, very sectional state. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, there's central PA, there's eastern PA, and there's western PA. There's also the Pittsburgh, Philly Islands, a series of smaller cities like Scranton and Allentown, and then an incredibly rural rest of the state. So there's a lot of different competing theories on how to win in Pennsylvania because it's such a close state. So you have someone like Connor Lamb who believes the solution is to be as moderate as possible because that way you depress Republican turnout because a lot of Republicans will think, oh, he's not so bad, and you run up margins in more rural areas, which reflects his district. Uh, with the key of it too being suburban voters. Mm-hmm. So the strategy like his being essentially assuming that ur- urban voters will come out in high enough numbers and what they don't do you can make up for with extended margins in suburbs and rural areas. Then you have a lot of people um, uh, among more progressive circles uh, which I imagine this is the skeleton of Kenyatta's strategy being to massively increase urban turnout and uh, rural turnout and still obviously campaigning in suburbs and rural areas, but focusing mostly on getting Democrats out to vote in high numbers because Democrats do have a registration advantage in the state. Right. So if you can just get them all out to vote, you would win by numbers. I do think and it's then, really interesting. Sorry, I don't mean oh, to pay yeah. But I, I also really think it's interesting how yeah. you have the the two Western PA candidates. Uh-huh. You have uh, two, maybe three candidates in Eastern PA, which we're going to get to just a second. Mm. Uh, and there's nobody in, in the middle. Yes. Um, and you... you I could see the argument that someone from somewhere like Scranton or Allentown might be mm-hmm. the best, you know, choice here. But yeah. clearly, that's not happening. So you know, we have mm-hmm. the two in the in the in the west and the three in the east. So I'm going to go to Nicole. You did research on the eastern PA candidates. So let's talk about Malcolm Kenyatta first, uh, real quick. Give us a breakdown. What does he do? What does he believe in? Yeah. So Malcolm Kenyatta is the big name of the three Eastern PA Dems. Uh, He's very progressive, I would say the most progressive candidate in the race so far. 
And he is currently a state representative in Northern Philadelphia, the 181st district. It's his second term there, but he has been in Northern Philadelphia his whole life. Um, A lot of his messaging is that he was born there in Philadelphia. He grew up in a low-income family. Um, He saw both of his parents die due to, you know, poor access to health care. So a lot of his messaging is what he's experienced, the hardships he's experienced, and how he can take that and put it into legislation. Um, Yeah, he would be the youngest senator in the Senate, the first openly gay black man in the PA Senate. Um, So he is definitely would be a very progressive candidate. Um, But I think a big thing for him will be branding himself to the entire state because, as I said, he's really spent his whole life there in Philadelphia. He's been a community organizer there. He went to Temple. He got his master's at Drexel. Mm -hmm. Um, So for him, his name recognition statewide is not great. And that's mm-hmm. going to be an important factor for him. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, c- I could honestly see Kenyatta being that dark horse to really make a run. I, I mean, obviously, Fetterman is ahead by 40 points on the second closest uh, candidate. And then Kenyatta's at 5% in the recent mm-hmm. poll. But I could really see Malcolm Kenyatta making a run and getting a, a, a somewhat close second once people start tuning into the race, once debates start going yeah. on. You know, he's an when awesome candidate. When name recognition candidate. evens out. When they, yeah, exactly. Yes. When people start paying attention and realize that name, recogni- name recognition advantage starts shrinking, uh, you know, we're not going to get too too deep into Kenyatta's policies because we will in an exclusive interview that we're, you know, we'll get to in just about five minutes, um, and that's a thirty minute interview. So stay tuned. It's it's an awesome interview. It's a blast. And stay tuned for the last question because that's a great question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you'll see what I mean. But um, you know, I, I I feel like Kenyatta has a real chance here. Uh, th- I mean, there's a reason he entered the race, and there's a reason he's staying. Um, you know, obviously, he you know he supports a lot of progressive things: the wealth tax, minimum wage, uh, or raising the minimum wage, obviously, Re- uh, reducing or eliminating student loan yeah. debt, Green New Deal. He's clearly knows he clearly knows what he's doing, um, and I-, I would not be surprised at all if he makes a run, uh, especially being from Philly, probably the largest, you know, the largest section of of votes in the entire state. I um, I'll yeah. say I would be surprised. I, I don't think he has much of a chance just because he's so progressive. Mm. He's openly gay. He would be the first black senator from PA. I, he did really well in fundraising initially, but it started to lag. And he doesn't have many massive endorsements, which, you know, Lamb does have a lot of endorsements from other representatives and stuff. So I think Kenyatta has a very, very tough road ahead of him to get oh, his name sure. out there, to get people to support him in Pennsylvania, which is not necessarily the most progressive state like he he has a a big steep path ahead yeah he's got he's got his work cut out for him but i could see i could see him really really making a a a, a, you know a wave here uh and so lastly we'll just cover val arkush uh to give us a rundown who's arkush okay so val arkush definitely uh less less known than fetterman kenyatta and lamb uh she is currently the chair of the montgomery county commissioners and she's done a lot of important things there that I think do look really good for her positions in this race. Like she raised the minimum wage to $15 there. She established paid parental leave. So the fact that she's also advocating for these policies statewide and she's already done something about it. Yeah. That looks really good for her. Having a mm-hmm. proven record. Yeah. Yeah. She has done a lot already. So I, I think she could definitely be a dark horse, but also uh, she was formerly a physician, which is another main part of her platform. She focuses a lot on accessibility to health care, um, reproductive rights for women, you know, health disparities. These are all major parts of her platform. Um, and, yeah, she she has some progressive stances, too, but she's a little bit more centrist than Kenyatta in some ways. And yeah. I think she could really have a chance just because, I don't know, she brings a different type of experience to the table. She has that political experience from being the county commissioner, mm-hmm. but she also has... The experience mm. in science, healthcare, and all that from being a physician. So. And that looks really good coming out of a pandemic. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and she also, does. 
uh, as well, too, like with her and with the other candidates that aren't Fetterman. Fetterman really set the terms of this race by starting it so early, knowing that he has a big name recognition advantage. So the main issue, I think, for people like Arkush and Kenyatta and Lamb to a lesser extent, but all the other candidates, is keeping their momentum going during this long early period where name recognition is going to give Fetterman a massive advantage. It's a so slog sh- of a race. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If, if, this, if it was two months till Election Day and this was all going on, then someone like Kenyatta would be in a lot better of a position. But the issue is that because there's so much time, so name recognition isn't going to even out for a long while, Fetterman has a big advantage. And it's a real struggle for the other candidates to keep up their momentum. So I think what you're going to see is that the candidates who make it through this early phase are going to be the ones who keep the fires lit. Yeah. Name recognition is huge. I feel like the average Pennsylvanian probably doesn't know who Arkush is. Like, they might not Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. yeah, so that is... You might have heard of Fetterman. You might have heard of Kenyatta. You might have heard of Lamb. If anyone... Probably it. They know Fetterman. He's the only Fetterman's most likely, for sure. And yeah. That's why he's yeah. at 52% in the recent poll. Uh, so with that, we covered the main four candidates. Uh, unfortunately, we are college students, as, you know, we drive home every week. Um, so, yeah, we're going to have to cut this here. Uh, we all have things to deal with. Um, so thank you all for listening to our analysis. Get ready. We're about to jump in to a huge interview with uh, Malcolm Kenyatta. Uh, I hope you all enjoy the interview. Uh, and Have a good day. Bye. See ya. Welcome back to the pod. Joining us now for the first guest in our podcast history, is a Philadelphia Democrat from the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. He is the first openly LGBTQ plus person of color elected to either chamber of the Pennsylvania General Assembly in state history. Now he's looking to bring a new day to Pennsylvania and to become the first person of color or openly LGBTQ plus person to be elected U.S. Senator from the state. Give it up for Malcolm Kenyatta. Malcolm, thanks for coming on the show. All right, let's get started. So uh, first question. Um, so you've lived in Philadelphia Uh, your entire life. Um, You serve as a state rep for a Philadelphia district. So what have you learned about the rest of Pennsylvania as you've been a state rep? And uh, how can you use that info during your Senate run? You know what? One of the things I've um, I've learned is everywhere, everywhere I go. Right. I hear people who were saying very, very similar things to what. You know, I, I heard my parents talking about growing up. Right the quality of, of the school that I, that I went to, whether or not they were going to be able to, you know, my mom who I live with for, for most of my life after my parents divorce, you know, whether or not she was going to be able to, you know, afford the bills that month Um, issues with, with healthcare um, and the price of prescription drugs. And I know we say those things so much and talk about those issues so much that, in some ways they lose their impact, but they are so common that we should never lose sight of the impact of having somebody run for whom those issues aren't hypothetical or philosophical. You know, I buried both of my parents by the time I was 27 because they didn't have good health care. You know, I went to one of those schools that were failing um, in terms of having adequate resources that, that they that they needed. I know what it's like to be housing insecure. And everywhere I go, I meet people who are saying the same things to me and are genuinely like freaking asking, like, when is government actually, actually gonna center those people? Gonna center those concerns, gonna center those common day-to-day challenges that people are identifying. And everywhere I go around the state, yeah, it might be some differences that people have culturally, right? Um, in terms of their, their, their communities, but those challenges are pretty universal. And that's given me a great sense of hope that if we can, in this election, elect somebody who understands the challenges that people all across the Commonwealth are dealing with, elect somebody who understands those challenges in their bones, then we are in a good position to actually have the type of consistent on the ground pressure that extends beyond an election, right? Because an election is one thing, 
But to get anything big done, you have to have people outside of any particular cycle talking about why this is important. And everywhere I go, good schools, housing, healthcare, these are things that people think important, are important in rural communities, exurban communities, suburban communities, urban communities. And that's, and that's really exciting to be able to go to places that are different than North Philadelphia, but to hear people who understand my story, even if I don't look like them, they understand my story because it's their story. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's thank you for, you know, you know, you bring, you know, you are from North Philadelphia and you bring that North Philadelphia mindset, but you know, you really do see those stories all across, all across the Commonwealth, as you said. And, you know, it's great to see that, um, you know, that you're traveling the Commonwealth and hearing these stories because, you know, hearing of diverse different, uh, experiences is so important, but, you know, you've lived those experiences, which is super important. Um, so I'll give it to Nicole for the next question. Yeah, so for our second question, obviously last week was a big election day. Um, so we were just wondering, like, what lessons do you think you'll take away from the results of last week's elections? And Virginia, you know, was a big one, also in the PA judicial elections. And do you think those results from those races kind of shift your view and strategy for this upcoming race? Not really, because I will tell you a big part of what I get asked all the time you know, it's what do Democrats need to say? What do Democrats need to say to get people? And what I say is we need to not be full of shit, right? We need to tell people what we believe. And if folks give us the honor of representing them, we need to then go go do those things. I thought the elections on Tuesday were really a mixed bag. Um, you know, Lori Dumas looks like she is going to win her race for Commonwealth Court, um, an incredible leader who I got to know here in Philly um, when she was working in the family court division, um, helping folks who are victims of, of sex trafficking. And she's going to be an incredible uh, judge on the, on, on the Commonwealth Court. Um, and I think a lot of what you saw around the Commonwealth is that the, is that people who are running who came from, let me say it this way, that candidates who talked honestly about what they believed, what they were going to, 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 to do, not that, all the, not that all of our candidates didn't do that, but you saw some really bright spots. Um, you look at Beaver Falls, for example, a race that not a lot of people talked about. But you had the first African-American women in history elected to be mayor of Beaver Falls. I mean, a community that's 80 plus percent white. And I think she won because she had a real clear vision for what she wanted to do for the community. And so for me, if we're going to be successful, it goes back really to the first thing that I said, is we have to have people who have a real grounding and can speak with a level of dexterity and nuance about what folks in their communities are, are, are experiencing. And, and the other thing I'll say is that I think people are looking for new leadership. You know, folks who bring fresh eyes and new voice to the challenges that we face. And I think we, we saw that and we, and we heard that. And so even in a cycle that historically you see lower turnout, um, you saw some incredible bright spots. I think one of the darker spots and one of the things that sort of hardened my resolve, frankly, was that turnout in Philly was under 20%, under 20%. Yeesh. You know, had turnout in Philly been on par with what we saw in Pittsburgh, for example, all of our statewide judicial nominees would have won. I mean, they weren't like, you know, I think Judge McLaughlin, last time I checked with all the um, absentee and provisional ballots um, being brought in, I mean, she's like a percentage point away. And so it just really emphasizes the fact that we have to have somebody that can speak to the fullness of our base, right? And I think our base is across the political spectrum and our base 
is situated across um, the Commonwealth from a regional perspective, but that base is young people, right? Um, it's people of color, it's suburban women. <laughs> I mean, that is the Democratic Party base. And if we have turnout in places like Philadelphia that low in 2022, we're not going to win. And so I think it matters a heck of a lot that I'm the only candidate from Philadelphia. Um, I think it matters a heck of a lot that I'm the only person in this race who is an actual working person. And I think that that's going to resonate moving forward. And so it didn't really change anything for me. It hardened my resolve on the things that I've been saying over and over and over again. But also, you know, I would just push back on the narrative that it's all doom, doom and gloom for, 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 for Democrats. I don't think the night was completely doom and gloom, you know, for, for, for Democrats. But obviously it emphasizes that we have a lot of work to do um, and a lot of work in keeping our multiracial, multiregional um, base um, engaged. Yeah, yeah, it's good to hear some hope after some of those kind of disappointing results from last week, but... Um, we're going to kind of bring it to a little bit of a lighter point, and we just want to ask to a lighter you, point. our largest audience <laughs> is probably the Yinzers of Pittsburgh. Um, what do you think is your favorite like area, experience, or spot over here in Western PA? Okay, so in Western PA, I will tell you um, two, 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 twofold. First, I love I love Erie. Um, Ooh, I yes. love Erie. Um, there is nothing. And I was in Erie on election day and, you know, I woke up and, you know, opened my, open the blinds of my hotel and you, and you're just sitting there and you're looking out at that water and you're seeing that view and you're like, damn, this is a beautiful, beautiful, um, state that we that we live in and Erie is one of I think our brightest spots in terms of the real majesticness that Pennsylvania has to offer and I think no other word other than majestic really um and really encompasses all the things that I was feeling waking up on E-Day and looking out and just seeing the seagulls and seeing the water and so that was I was just in Erie recently and so Erie is very top of mind <laughs> um, for, 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 for me, for me, right, right. Now. Um, you know, when I'm in, when I'm in Pittsburgh and I, I like to be, you know, in Pittsburgh a, a, a lot, frankly, and was in Pittsburgh, um, you know, quite, quite a bit. My college roommate, um, is, is, is from, is from Pittsburgh. And so, he and I have always been, been been good friends, and I've always been able to to, to come over and, and and visit him. But I also have a dear friend who lives on Mount Washington, and so and so I'm going to pick Mount Washington only because nice. I think I think it matches the sort of majestic nature of the very in-depth description of a theory <laughs> that I gave. You know, feeling a very similar thing, and when you walk up to the to, to the peak and I, and I did it, you know, I'm an early riser anyway, but I was like, you have to wake up really early and get that sunrise right on Mount Washington and looking at the bridges and seeing yeah. everything happen. And me and my partner, Dr. Matt, the last time we were in Pittsburgh, we woke up uh, too, too fucking early in the morning to go, <laughs> to go make sure we saw it and got and got some 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 good pictures. So I think you're getting a theme here that if you want to get Malcolm really invested in a place, you have to have a good, <laughs> a good, a good sunrise. And I think Mount Washington and the Erie Bayfront are like two of the best sunrises in Pennsylvania. Mm. I have yet to go to Mount Washington for a sunrise. I uh, definitely more of a, a, a late nighter. Um, <laughs> I, I went to Erie over the spring semester though, and Erie is beautiful. Um, oh my god! I, I'm excited so to go beautiful. back. Yeah. Um, so anyway, before we get into a couple more lighthearted questions, I just wanted to dive into a couple, a couple policy issues that uh, love it. You know, aren't as popular to talk about in the news nowadays. Um, love it. Let's talk about. But it. you can actually find some divides. Um, so first of all, uh, you know, we went through your website to make sure you know you didn't have a stance uh, written. Um, so so first up, what's your stance regarding uh, nuclear power and its impact? Uh, you know, whether it's a pro or a con for trying to help climate change. Uh, and does, you know, the three mile incident 
you know, famous in, in Pennsylvania, does that have any impact on your stance? So, so nuclear power has to be a part of, 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 of our strategy. Um, you know, when I think about Three Mile Island, I actually think in large part about what the Republicans did recently in terms of taking away the governor's, you know, ability to declare a longer term disaster declaration. And that was passed unanimously after the Three Mile Island you know, meltdown that, 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 that we saw. And so, so that's just like top of mind for, 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 for me right now, um, how far we've, how far we've come, but that has to be, a, that has to be a part of it. Right. I think for us, there are a lot of things that, that we can do in terms of really doubling down on the green technology and the clean energy manufacturing that is going to be really necessary for us to meet this moment. That means building out um, electric charging stations, you know, all across the Commonwealth, all across the country. I want as many of those components to be built here in Pennsylvania. I want as much of the work that needs to be done to maintain um, you know, those, those stations as well to be Pennsylvania union workers. And so our approach has to be, how do we double down, triple down investing in things that produce less methane, less CO2? I mean, it's really like that, you know, that, that simple understanding that this is very complex, but it really is that simple in terms of what we, what we need to do. I think the big issue with, with, with nuclear is, is, is what you, what you do when, when, when those end up being decommissioned, um, right? And we want to make sure um, that when sites are decommissioned, that the material uh, that is left that that doesn't end up being, you know, buried in environmental justice um, communities. Obviously, that's more of a, a longer term thing. The lifespan of these facilities is obviously very, very long. But that is something that I think, you know, a lot about to make sure that we're not sort of leaving behind environmental hazards in communities where they've already suffered um, under the weight of mass proliferation of waste processing uh, plants or, or, or others like that. But I think nuclear is going to be a part of the strategy that we have to have moving forward. Thank you very much, because frankly, you might have just earned my unbridled support in this election with that response, frankly. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to Nicole for the other policy question that we have. Yeah, well, I have to say really quick, I just really appreciate those stances you have on, you know, climate policy, because I think the fact that you're the only candidate right now that supports a moratorium on fracking, to me, that's huge. And that makes a really big yes. difference. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think and I think we have to be. We, we have to say that. And not only do we have to say that, we have to we have to do that. Right. And I think the way we get from where we are to where we want to go is going to require leadership that's honest with people. And this is not about taking anybody's job. And I think I said this when I was with you all in, in you know, in, uh, in, in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. Do you know who also doesn't want to freaking drill any new wells like Sunoco and BP, <laughs> these other people? And again, they're not doing it because they're our friends. They're not doing it because they're nice. They are investing in all these clean energy companies and in these um, really groundbreaking technologies because these companies have always wanted to be a part of selling the, the, the poison and selling the cure. We saw the same thing with tobacco companies that are also selling you nicotine gum. I mean, they're the same companies, right? Like, and again, they're not our buddies, um, but we do need to understand that if we want sustainable, and I don't mean that just in the environmental sense, I also mean it in terms of generationally sustainable, right? One of my best friends is from a little town called Carbondale, Illinois. His grandfather was a coal miner. His dad um, was, was a coal miner. His uncle was a coal miner. And when the coal mine closed, a big part of their identity as a family was tied into that as well. And so the question for us is how do we create 
generationally sustaining jobs. And that's why I say, I don't want Pennsylvania to just be a part of building the charging stations and a part of building out um, and integrating this new technology into our energy uh, portfolio. I wanna make sure that these are sustainable jobs, generationally sustainable jobs. And if Pennsylvania decides that we are gonna be the place that is gonna own the clean energy future, that creates a bunch of good long-term jobs, not even to mention the work that we need to do in remediating um, abandoned mines and capping um, wells that aren't capped right now and all the work that that's going to mean for miners and for pipe fitters and for and for uh you know for steam fitters and so many others right yeah that's all really important and i it's kind of disheartening that some of the other candidates don't focus on that as much but um there's a lot that can be said about climate policy we also wanted to talk a little about education and we found that in philadelphia one in three students are enrolled in charter schools which is one of the highest rates nationwide. So we were just wondering, what do you think about that number? Is it something you want to decrease or just generally what, how would you like to reform the Philadelphia or Pennsylvania education system? So a big part of our approach has to be doubling down because I want to be very clear to delineate what the federal government can do in terms of our schools. Because I think that that is something as well, you know, as you're running a campaign, not only are you educating people where you're, where you stand on issues, but also you're able to talk, you know, with, with people in detail sort of about what you can do from the position that you have. Right now as a state legislator, you know, a big part of what I've been pushing for is us to put all the funding, all the money that we dedicate to education through the fair funding formula. Because right now we don't do that. And we have this policy called hold harmless where no district can get less money than it got the year before, even if things in the district has changed in terms of enrollment, in terms of economic need. And then we put the rest of the money through the fair funding formula. I don't think that's very fair. And I don't think it actually holds district harmless. It's actually caused a lot of harm for districts who have not seen the type of adequate funding that they've need. And so at the state level, it's been critical that we make sure state funding all be allocated in a way that actually deals with the socioeconomic um, needs of the students in that district and also the historic levels of funding um, that have been in those in those districts and trying to make sure we're balancing that appropriately. That's one of the things that we wanted to use some of the money that came from the um, from the rescue plan um, in Washington. It's, it's what we wanted to use the money for, um, for the first time to actually make a historic level investment into education funding that allows us to increase funding in, in, in school districts that desperately need an increase in funding per pupil, um, but also not, not hurting districts um, who don't wanna see their funding go down. Obviously, as you might imagine, the Republicans did not support that proposal. Um, therefore, we haven't really done anything in that regard. But at the federal level, one of the areas that we can really hunker down is on our investment in Title I schools. Those are our poorest schools um, around the country. And I was in York, for example, um, school district, meeting with, the, with the, um, the superintendent of schools there. And she was talking about the fact that 80 plus percent of her students at the height of the COVID pandemic were in schools where you know, in, in school instruction was closed. 80 plus percent of their students did not have internet at home because they couldn't afford it and did not have a you know, computer or tablet to be able to engage with school. So she went about purchasing hotspots and working with Verizon and Comcast to get low cost um, hotspots and tablets and computers out to the students. Do you know what pot of money she used to fund that? Title one money. And so what I want to see us do is a provide more flexibility in terms of how teach and how school districts can use title one funds. We, we used very little, there were very little strings um, tied around 
the um, CARES Act um, money that came and also the American Rescue um, money that came, the, the ESSER one and ESSER two funds as they were as they were called. We need to make sure our Title I funds have that level of flexibility moving forward. And I think we need to quadruple, and you heard me on that, quadruple our, the amount of funds that we send to Title I schools. And I think that that is one of the things that will actually put people in a position where they want to send their kid to the local public school and will allow us to deal with what our current charter school law at the state level has meant and how that has led to the direct underfunding of our public schools because of how it's currently constituted. And so at the federal level, obviously we can't change that state law, but we can direct funds to the schools that need the most help. And the second thing I'll say is around mental health and having our kids out of school, right? For yes. two years, basically, means that we have a bunch of kids coming in with a number of mental health challenges, social and emotional issues that we have to address. And turns out I had a bill that related to this long before the COVID-19 pandemic, after the tragic um, death by suicide of an 11 year old in my district. Um, little Phil, 11 years old, died by suicide. Um, and um, I will tell you that has been the worst day since I've been in the legislature getting the call from his grandmother that that he had uh, passed. And not only did I work with folks who I knew to, to pay for the funeral and, and get Phil uh, buried in a way that had a level of dignity, what I said was to his family was we need to make sure that we don't forget any other little Phil's that are out there crying out for help. And Phillips Law would really study and then propose a mandated ratio for how many mental health professionals we have in our schools. But then the big question becomes, how do you fund it? I mentioned Phillips Law, which right now is state level proposal, but I told that story to then Vice President Biden when I was campaigning for him in New Hampshire. Right. He added Phillips Law to his platform that he ran on. And I will tell you, one of the most important days for me will be when we pass Phillips Law at the federal level, where there's a mandated ratio for how many mental health professionals we have in each one of our schools that receive public funds, but also that we ensure that this is not an unfunded mandate and we actually provide states with the block grant funding that's going to be necessary to ensure that we pay the mental health professionals that are in our schools, but that we also start thinking about how we deal with the lack um, of mental health professionals that we have available in the first place. Yeah. And I know that was a long answer, but I think that that's really, really important. It's an absolutely fantastic answer, actually. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah. I, I mean, I serve on the student government board at Pitt and we just came out of mental health awareness month. And that is so important. And we thank you so much for, you know, having that as such an important, um, you know, part of your campaign. And, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that, you know, everybody involved in that situation had to go through that, but thank you so much for your leadership through that. Um, and, and so, you know, we're running a little short on time here. So we're going to ask one more question, um, you know, bring a little more levity, but also a little bit serious. We'll see how it goes. Uh, you know, we do our research. We do our research for the show. Um, I love and, it. You know, while doing some digging, uh, we found out when you were in you when you were my age in college, uh, yep. you performed poetry in the nude. That is accurate. So, so how have those performances? You know, how have the, how has those helped you when when you're facing you know angry citizens of PA or angry people in general? Uh, and how has poetry itself shaped the way you view the world? You know, one thing I'll say is I, I miss my, my my college body. I was freaking great shape then. <laughs> so 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 take care of yourselves, kids. Um, I'm trying my best. <laughs> but, but, but the second thing I'll say is, you know, poetry armed me with the ability to be authentic in public through the fear and discomfort that also that often comes with that right? right because to open yourself up to run for office to put yourself out there in that way is terrifying but i will tell you and i say to people all the time the worst things that have happened and in terms of that the some of the most 
<laughs> revealing things that have happened to me have already happened. <laughs> and so <laughs> everything in the campaign is 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 kind of like is kind of like gravy. Poetry and gave me a way in Babel, which is the performance poetry group I started at Temple, which is still going strong and has won a bunch of uh, a bunch of national awards. Nice. It gave me an opportunity to process a lot of the pain that I carried growing up, you know, with divorced parents, not having a lot of money, um, having a bunch of trauma, frankly, right. um, from certain experiences that I had. And it gave me a way to have those conversations in an open and authentic way. And um and yeah, I think that that's been helpful with running and talking to people because I will tell you, so many of our political leaders are far too many of them. I don't want to say all of them, right? So I won't put a percentage mm-hmm. on this, but I will <laughs> say more than I would like are full of shit. More than I would like. And I buy that. <laughs> I'm, uh, it's, it's very, it's, it's disappointing. Yeah. But I say that to say that when I decided to run for state rep, and even as I run this race, when it's all said and done, when every vote is cast, when I win this primary, which I will, I wanna be able to say I ran as myself, that I didn't present to people some version of Malcolm, but that I actually ran as myself and that people voted for me, authentically me, not some contrived campaign tested version of me, but me. And certainly poetry and those experiences I had um, you know, helped me feel um, brave enough to do that. All right. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'm, I mean, that's a hell of a way to prepare yourself for politics. I can tell you that much. <laughs> I, I don't know if I would be comfortable with nude poetry, but you know, you know, you know, a certain amount of money could get me there. Um, but <laughs> anyways, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Uh, this has been a blast. Um, thank you for saying yes. I mean, you're really putting us on the map here. Well, I appreciate you both. Thank you for for using the platform that you're building in this way to have these types of conversations. And um, happy to be with you. And really appreciate your uh, your flexibility, my friends. Of course, thank you. Looking forward to you know seeing what you do on the campaign. All right, my All friends, right. take care. You too. Just wanted to give a huge thank you to Malcolm Kenyatta once again. Uh, it means so much to us that he was willing to come and join us on our podcast. Uh, hopefully this helps us, you know, get on the map. I hope you all enjoyed the interview. Um, you know, thank you all for listening. Uh, we'll see you all next week. Um, so thank you very much. Ballot Breakdown. I'm Daniel. All right, signing off. Peace.